0: My guest today is Terry Dry, and I just know you're going to love hearing his story. Terry grew up in Chicago and moved to L.A. to work in the music business back in the 90s. His company, Fanscape, developed social media before social media was even a thing. But he built an amazing offering around some of the world's biggest names in music and at one point represented seven out of the ten top artists in the U.S., Terry's such a nice guy and and super humble. Uh, In this episode, he openly discusses a bunch of things that went wrong on his journey. And as with all of us, some of them were self-inflicted, but we'll also hear how he managed to overcome a heap of challenges and still achieve a fabulous exit. Now, Terry's also one of those examples where an earnout was actually very successful. And he shares some tips on how other business owners can get the most out of a deal structure like this. But to be honest, there are so many other tips and advice weave through this conversation that I just know you're going to get a lot out of it. I really enjoyed chatting to Terry, and I'm sure you'll enjoy hearing from him too. This is Terry Dry. Hello, Terry. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Simon. Good to be here. Yeah, great to see you again. You too. Uh, I've been really looking forward to this episode. It's, um, you know, for people listening to this, I had the pleasure of catching up with Terry once before. So we had a little chat and I just really enjoyed talking to him and hearing his story and part of it anyway. So we we wanted to save all the juicy bits for for the show. So (laughs) Terry, I I know we're going to talk a little bit about fanscape because we we love talking about um, transactions and deals and stuff like that on this show. But um, maybe you could just kick off and give us a little bit of your background and what led you to that sort of point of your life. And of course, we'll talk about what you're doing today, uh, you know, uh, when we get to that point in the journey?
1: Sure. uh, I'll try to keep it short. I grew up in Chicago. Uh, I don't like cold weather and wanted to be in the music business, so that brought me to Los Angeles. Uh, I then graduated college and worked in the music business for years back when it was still fun in the 90s. And then (laughs) uh, that kind of evolved into uh, digital at the end of the 90s, and that's when we started our company fanscape uh, uh, to solve this problem, to use the internet to help musicians and artists be closer to their fans. So that was kind of my business background. But yeah, I guess my personal as well. Uh, I am I'm, I then started that company, but married two lovely daughters, 12 and 10 years old. Very happy to be here in LA and not in Chicago, uh, where it's too cold for me. I'm a total lightweight. And uh, that's my story. That's my
0: background. Yeah, cool. So, uh, so in the record business in the '90s, and somewhere I'm sure in the back of your mind, you are thankful that you spent your youth in the analog age without social media.
1: <laughs> it was the greatest. Yeah, I mean, it was funny. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was my dream to do it. I, I literally came to LA. I lived the Hollywood dream. And yes, it's so funny now. Like when I tell my kids, like I would have bands out on the road, and I'm like. They couldn't reach me. I couldn't reach them. They'd have to stop at a payphone and call me at home if they needed something. Like it was unheard of to communicate with people on the weekend or even at night. You know, yeah. it didn't happen that much. So yes, I, I'm glad to have lived that, and and glad to be not in that anymore either.
0: Yeah yeah I I'm just always thankful that all my m- mischief and misspent youth wasn't caught on on video and put on the internet so oh my god
1: <laughs> that's so true yeah it's uh yes absolutely right it, it that was one thing social media it does keep you honest right like someone's watching <laughs> yeah. and they could share it so that usually is there's more good than bad but uh yeah it's it's crazy
0: yeah, I I it, I do feel for, you know, kids, I, my boys are 12 and 14 now, but I, you know, it's a different sort of set of concerns or risks out there these days to say, hey, listen, the internet's this big, amazing thing. But yeah, you do need to be a little bit careful of what you put out there. So, totally. <laughs> But no. I will say
1: this Simon, I, there are so many moments in my record business career that I wish I had a little camera phone <laughs> that, that I could I could show story. there would be stories that people wouldn't believe and then there's moments where I'm like my kids would think their dad was cool because I'm like look where I was, look <laughs> who I was talking to because now they know dad's not cool but back yeah. then dad was, dad was a little cool
0: yeah 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 I, my kids remind me that I'm very uncool every day so yeah. uh yeah <laughs> so uh so you started fanscape in 2000 so it clearly survived the you know the Y2K bug where you didn't all die rockets didn't launch all that rest of it
1: <laughs> true we made it through yes
0: yeah so tell me a little bit about how how you kicked it off so you you're the the co-founder um I think it was with Larry I believe yes
1: yeah Larry was we we're still we're like brothers and uh, we worked together in the music business, and we saw this void. And uh, and it's kind of you know how does the entrepreneurial journey start, right? You're in there, you're doing the work, and you're the technician, and then you realize, or you think you can do it better, or you can build something better, and you get disillusioned by those above you. And in my particular case, we worked as part of Universal Music Group, and they started consolidating everything, and they um, consol our, our record company from 200 people, I think to 20. And wow. I was one of the 20. So it was terrible. Like I had like survivor's guilt. And uh, I was like, well, this could have easily have happened to me too. And we're just like, I want to control my own destiny. And we really saw an opportunity. We saw what the internet was doing. And our background was in artist development. We used to, if you can believe this back to analog, to your point, Simon, we would take like big artists, you know, like Cheryl uh, Crow or whoever. And when they first started and we gave them like a three ring binder and said like, Hey, put this at your merchandise table and get people to write their address so we can send them a postcard, you know? And (laughs) that was literally what we were training people to do. And then we're like, there's a better way to do this. We can use this internet thing and email thing and start developing this for bands. And no one was doing it at the time. And that was kind of how Fanscape was born, but it was built out of let's cut out the middleman. Let's be able to connect artists and their fans directly so they don't have to have to go to a show to buy a t-shirt, have to go to the record store to buy the music. Like that's that was what our vision was of, of making
0: that connection. So so Fanscape, so just to try to clarify what Fanscape was. So it's it was a basically a platform to help artists grow their their brand and get out get their message out there. Was it or
1: yeah I mean we started that so you have to go back in time and actually believe that this is when an artist, all they had was maybe a website because it looked cool, but there was no social media. There was no anything. So we're like, wait a minute, this website is this great tool because anyone can access it. But so many artists, you wouldn't believe it, didn't even have a link to say, sign up for my email list. It was just like an was like a billboard. And so we were trying to make this more engaging. So that was a big part of our platform. And the only reason artists would do it is we said, we will then build you an online store where we will sell T-shirts and music and concert tickets and whatever it is and help you be your own industry. That was our vision of it. And that's how it started. But I think as we'll talk about, there are many pivots that happened. And it was two guys who really had no idea what we were doing. But we, we literally were in his garage. We were, you know, the classic story was us
0: yeah that's so cool so so 13 14 odd years talk me through the journey a little bit i mean it started with just the two of you where did it go how did it end what did it what sort of how big did it get by the time you you know finally well, how much exit? time
1: you have simon that's a long, <laughs> long point I, I, I'll, I'll try to make that succinct um but it started in music because that's and that our happy accident was music lent itself to digital or digital disruption that industry kind of happened first you know one of the real early ones so we're lucky to have come out of that because we got all that experience and kind of see what was going to happen so we started in music we started by building these online stores we were so dumb i'll tell you i mean we were trying to run a warehouse we had the police come we had i mean we've got all those stories right <laughs> Doing everything wrong And then we finally figured out the real value was in the marketing, was in the data. It wasn't so much in selling e-commerce t-shirts of punk rock bands. It was more the fact that we had built a mailing list of 100,000 people on email of a band that really only sells 200,000 albums. And so you're going, wow, in a click of a button, I can reach half your fan base. And then we started helping them. This is, again, before pre-sales were a thing. We would help them pre-sell out concerts. We would do all that. So we're like, there's something here. But the value was in the interaction, the, the engagement, and the community. And we were kind of, I wouldn't say forcing, but in some cases, forcing the artists to communicate with their fans, which is also natural now. But back then it wasn't. There was sort of a barrier. And so we were letting them open themselves up, share things. We would send video files, MP3 files, all that stuff. And then it evolved because the record labels got wise finally and said, wait a minute, we should be doing this. And we shouldn't be outsourcing it to these guys, even though they figured it out. And there was a time, Simon, where I think we were working with like seven of the top 10 artists in the country at the same time. And so we had really cornered music online marketing this before it was called social. And then we kind of started to pivot. In fact, I'm so old, we actually helped launch MySpace. Like when MySpace launched we were part of it. Our first ever employee went to go work and was one of the senior guys at MySpace early on. And so it's just kind of funny how that all started snowballing. And that really got us into social media, which then got us into, let's get out of just music and entertainment. And what we were doing for artists and their fans, we started doing for brands and their consumers. And we were in this great place where social media became a thing. We were right on the, you know, at the front end of that. And we could start doing it for bigger clients and bigger companies. I'll yeah. pause there. Are you bored yet?
0: Not at all. I'm fascinated. I can just imagine some of the people that you worked with and some of the stories and the adventures. It uh, it sounds like it would have been a great ride.
1: It was great. I mean, we worked really close. I guess I had spent a whole career working really closely with artists and things. So that was fun. But what would change was there was a day when a huge telecom company, which was AT&T, called us and wanted us to promote something they were doing, which had to do with music because we got referred that way. And they paid us literally 10 times more money to do the work than a record label would. So being the brilliant entrepreneur I am, Simon was like, that's (laughs) a good idea. We should maybe do a little bit more (laughs) of that. And uh, that's really how we started getting. And the funny part was the AT&T client who was spending 10 times more money with us was thrilled because they were getting so much more value because at the time they didn't, no one knew the power of social media. No one knew the power of what at the time it was fan sites and little mini blogs and e-zines and all these little communities that could drive so much traffic because it was so specified, which was the beauty of the internet and the beauty of social media is because you could really know your audience.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? I mean, uh, you know, and uh, I'm I'm old enough to remember all these times as well, but it's, um, you know, I, I you go back to when Facebook sort of started and what was it? I think it was 2007 or something like that. And, and everyone was talking about this social thing, but like you're saying, like nobody kind of really knew what it was or how it would work. Everyone kind of was saying this is going to be big, but no one knew how. And yeah, so it yeah. sounds like. Sorry, yeah. go ahead. No, it just, I was going to say it sounds like you kind of started to crack that formula just before any of the real sort of platforms took off.
1: Well, you no, know, I'll tell you, we really cracked it early on with the platforms and it helped us. So let's use Facebook as an example. When Facebook first started, it was all organic. There was no way to pay to play on Facebook. And again, if you remember, it was used to be a closed community to just college students, but the second it opened up, we were early on it. In fact, I remember one of our interns showing it to me when it was still closed to college kids. Like I was so wow. lucky that I could see it. I was like, oh, let's see what this is. And she's like, this is better than MySpace, you know? And I was like, really? Okay. And one of our great examples as an agency, so we then kind of evolved into this agency and we fell into being one of the very first social media agencies was we were working with a, I'll use a GameStop because they're always in the news uh, these days. As I, uh, At the time, the big gaming retailer still is, but back in, this is like 2006. And we're like, hey we'll create a facebook community for you and we organically grew this thing from like 5 people to 6 million people and this is with no money this is before facebook you had to pay anything this was all natural not all organic we had the greatest like person running that community like we just knew it you know we had a gamer in there and we did this and it helped market promote them but it also gave them access to 6 million people, you know, at, at, at for free. And so that was, we, it was a huge, huge thing before Facebook went public and started to charge, you know, became a media company versus a social media company.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and and just to be clear here, so GameStop is still the one who leveraged that 6 million people crowd to then go and game their own share price, right? Is that the same GameStop that I'm thinking?
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny. <laughs> That's why it's so funny now, because it's like one of these great stories. It's absolutely right. And it's the kind of stuff they should have done back then. But... Um, yeah, that's a long other story, but
0: yes. Yeah, <laughs> a bunch kind of gamers, of bunch of gamers gaming the, the system. Yeah, geez, never, no, who would have thought that would have happened? <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's an amazing, they're an amazing story. <laughs>
1: really cool company. Yeah. And they were great to us, though, because they really, to be honest, the, back to the entrepreneurial journey and building a company, we were always doing project-based stuff. And they were the first big company to come in and do like an annual retainer with us as a social media agency, which again, in 2005, six, seven, that was unheard of. Like no one had a social media agency of record. So that was a great thing. And then just as a business owner, that was a great thing because you had the predictability of income, a big client and somebody that you could go do great work for. And we would go win awards and do stuff. And that actually lent us to YouTube where we did one of the very first influencer programs by using GameStop and, Blew up a whole thing there too, so just very lucky. We've
0: been very fortunate to have good timing and have the right kind of clients to work with too. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. I, 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 I want to come back to talking about the fanscape and and your deal and how you progress with all that sort of stuff. But before I do that, I just a little question because you know social media marketing agency work, all this sort of stuff, it's obviously continued to evolve, right? And and it's almost like I, I almost feel like. Marketing agencies are so ubiquitous these days. Everybody, anybody who can get on there and create a Facebook page calls themselves a digital marketer and all this sort of stuff, right? So, and I find a lot of the business owners that I speak to kind of are overwhelmed and confused by a lot of the message out there. Um, so I just wanted to ask you, I guess, you know, with all this stuff going on there and so many sort of so-called experts out there claiming to be great marketing and digital agencies, what do you think, you know, makes a good agency these days?
1: What a great question. I mean, it's changed so much, right? That Because it used to be you had a secret or you had a skill that no one could figure out or you had some knowledge that no one could figure out. But, you know, if you look today, knowledge is somewhat of a commodity and it becomes more about your wisdom and your experience and your ability to apply things. So I, I would say... An What makes a great agency today is someone who's in the business solutions business. like That they're really looking at like, I'm going to partner with you to help you get an outcome. And yeah, I have these certain skills. I can do creative. I can do digital. I can do whatever. But all of that's becoming a little more ubiquitous, to your point. And, it, and, and everybody kind of does everything. Whereas when we were doing it, and this is 10 plus years ago, uh, I mean, at the time it was far more specialized. You had your social media here, you had your digital here, you had your PR. Now you could kind of combine it. And I think that's part of what makes a good agency that sees that blend, but is focused on the outcome and really looks like a partner to you versus a vendor, if you will, who's going to just do spots and dots versus actual outcomes.
0: Yeah, look, that's, that's great advice. It's, it's funny because I, I get spammed every day by people saying, Oh, I've noticed your website. Do you, did you want to be on the first page of Google? We can, where is it? You know, it's like, Oh, really? Another one? <laughs> but, but nobody's actually saying, What is it that you're trying to achieve in your business? Does actually being on page one of Google mean something to your business? You know, like right. maybe it does. It's, I mean, let's face it, Google's Google, but. Yeah, I think they're missing that pivotal question, which you're pointing to is well, what, what's the outcome you're trying to achieve?
1: Yeah, and I'll tell you the dirty little secret, even with working with big, huge companies, sometimes they don't even know. Yeah. and uh, yeah. Or so-and-so who works in marketing there just goes, I don't know, just get me this. You know, I used to get back to the Facebook days. We would get these calls like, my boss just wants us to have 100,000 likes. And I would get those all the time. And I'd be like, all right, fine, I'll buy them for you. There's a bot I can use. You know, you want to do this the right way or the wrong way. And they're like, well, I don't care. They're just looking at this scorecard. I'm like, you don't get it. You don't get what consumer engagement is. You don't get what marketing is. You're just trying to buy things, and that doesn't work. And then, meanwhile, Facebook flipped essentially to that model, you know, in many ways. And so then it, you know, but what happened? Then all these other things spawned as a result just to talk in social. But yeah, I think hopefully that helps answer the question for anybody who's listening in the service. Solve problems.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Don't get caught up in the vanity metrics, right? Like clicks are a nice thing, but only if it actually leads to results and outcomes.
1: Yeah. (laughs) And ask why. Just ask why. But But my fair warning to anyone listening is it's sometimes really unsettling and shocking when your client doesn't know why. Yeah. <laughs> it yes. doesn't have a good answer, and uh, yeah. or doesn't care,
0: <laughs> you know. And, or even worse, right? Yeah, yeah. and yeah. so that that can happen. So, um, thank you for that. I, I just, I know it was a bit of a off off topic almost, but I was just, I'm curious about it because it's such a an evolving space. So, uh, and I, and I know marketing is one of those. Areas that so many business owners, unless they have a marketing background, are kind of just a bit lost, you know a bit of a deer in the headlights with so yeah but, um, and it's and it's such a critical function so so back to fanscape um you know you there for 13, 14 years How, to, can you give me some sort of idea of the size and scope of the business by the time you sort of finally exited?
1: well um what, it's interesting when we were starting to look to sell the company, we weren't that big we were maybe doing five million in revenue and you know just just under a million four million, five million in revenue, just under a million in profit kind of thing in US dollars. And um the staff was 30, 35 people somewhere around there. Um but what really happened was the world started catching up to us. And uh we thought we knew this little secret and we were kind of naive and a little arrogant and and uh then Everybody else kind of staffed up and kind of figured this out. And the bigger agency world started saying, oh, we do social media. And the second, in fact, to go back to that AT&T story, that's what happened. My AT&T client called me and said, you know how I always hire you for this stuff? Well, I'm not allowed to now because our PR agency says they do exactly what you do. And Simon, it's one of those moments as an entrepreneur where you remember where you were standing (laughs) and I remember I was on the street on my cell phone and I stopped and I hung up and I'm like, I got to sell the company like we can't beat them, join them. And um, we were going to get edged out as this small player. And so that's where we were when we decided to sell. Now, all that said, we then rode the wave of social media. This is 2011 through like 2017, 18 and grew six hundred percent. So by like the end of it all, I think we were at twenty five million in in revenue and doing you know in the neighborhood of five million in profit and hundred forty, hundred fifty people in four offices all around the country. And it got it got big relatively fast. So scaling was a whole other
0: animal. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. And 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 prior to you having that moment. <laughs> um, had you and Larry had you talked about what an exit might look like or was selling ever an idea originally or yeah like we just you know I'll tell you I'll
1: give you two stories on that when we first started somebody asked us what's an you know what's your exit plan and we were like what's an exit plan <laughs> <laughs> we didn't really know, We're like, well, we just want to do this. We want to run this business. We're like, what? And then you really start thinking about an exit plan. I would say this is the second part of the story. When two things happen, one, when you have a kid, which he had his kid, and then a year later, I had my first kid. And two, when there's a financial crisis. And that was in 2008. And both those things happened for us at the same time. And so those are the moment, I would tell you, we really didn't think much about it. Till then, in fact, we had turned down an offer to sell our company prior. Um, And then that really gets you, that gets your attention when you're losing six figures of your own money a month that you don't really have. Um, Then you're like, oh, I don't think I want this level of risk anymore. So uh, that's when we really, you know, I I wish I could tell you we were more strategic, but it was far more reactive.
0: Uh look, you know, Terry, I, I think so many people would relate to that. So and, and that's the that's the beauty of having these conversations, right? Is to let business owners know they're not alone. Oh and, yeah, you and are it- not alone.
1: It is the loneliest <laughs> feeling, right? It is the feeling of lonely at the top. That saying is so true. And you you just kind of just forge ahead. But yeah, that and that's I think where people like yourself and me, like we want to help people by sharing our mistakes and our journey so that they don't make the same.
0: Definitely, definitely. Point out the potholes so people don't step in it. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly um so so what happened you had this moment it's a life-changing moment i i think you know there's you know jfk princess diana so many of these sort of moments in life where people go i remember exactly where i was you know um so so you've had your sort of personal jfk moment um oh. well what, 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 maybe not as extreme as that but uh but yeah one of those sort of pivotal life moments what what happened after that um, after the moment where we needed to sell,
1: where we knew we needed yeah. to, yeah, I mean, it was literally that fast. Where we're like, oh boy, we're gonna, we're gonna need to do this. And then what happened was 2008 happened, and so all <laughs> yeah. of a sudden, when there were like suitors, you know, you then you call back and go, you know how you and I totally did this. I mean, like crawling <laughs> back like a baby, right? Like, hey, you know how you we turned down that offer? Well. <laughs> does that offer still stand? And the person's like, are you nuts? Like the whole world's (laughs) cratering. You're cratering. Why would we buy this? And we're like, oh. And then you go through the hard stuff of laying off people and all that. But then it was a very, it was a far more focused agenda of, okay, let's build this thing back up. Let's be very deliberate about partnering with people and then be able to sell, make sure it's kind of known that we want to sell. and, 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 but that we still wanted to be in the business, which we were. And, um, and that was it, but it was, it became a plan. It became sort of a mission, but I hate saying this, but it was more of a survival tactic than a growth mindset. It was far more fear based. And, uh, and that was yeah. sort of our reality of doing it. Like I would tell you, I didn't want, I don't think Larry or I, I don't think we wanted to sell the company. I think we knew we needed to, A, to just stay stable, but B, that was the only way we were going to grow. We were hovering in that three, four, five million revenue range for a few years. And we knew we needed to sort of partner with the big boys to like get in the door of these bigger clients. And, and that's exactly what happened.
0: Yeah. Wow. Did, did, at that point, did you and Larry have conversations around your your number, like what number you needed to be able to make, you know, get out or what you'd accept? (laughs) Um, That number changed so
1: dramatically in 2008. (laughs) It went from you know millions to like, will somebody pay the rent for us?
0: <laughs> yeah, um, yeah
1: so did we have a number we somewhat, but it was really so um the deals that were available to us in the service and agency business primarily at the time they're not so much anymore, but at the time were earnout based, so so much of it was like, okay, you'll get a little up front and you'll get something which is great, and you'll get um, stability, right? You get like we got five-year employment contract kind of thing, but it was really all on the come. It was really all on the earnout, and that was just fine for us. Like that was exciting. So I would say less than a number. It was more about what's the multiple and what's the deal look like on the earnout
0: yeah okay, okay. so that's that's a really interesting mix. you know we've we've had lots of um, guests on this show already that have talked about earnouts and some hit them and some missed them and all the rest of it. Um, uh, how did you guys get what was your experience with all of that?
1: Fantastic. It was the best thing that ever and again, you know you always can look back in hindsight. Best thing that ever happened to us was we didn't sell in 2008 because then we would have been in an earnout when everything crashed. It was stressful. I'm sure it took you know. I got gray hair and all that stuff, but um, the earnout worked out perfectly for us. It was it was it was a fair multiplier. It was an unlimited. A lot of earnouts have caps on them. We had no cap, um, so it was you know you eat what you kill kind of thing. So you could just grow it, and we grew you know in that earnout period. I think it was roughly four ish million in revenue walking in, and walking out three years later, we were at thirteen or fourteen in revenue. Nice. So that was a big, big jump, you know, yeah. at the right time.
0: Um, one of the things I, I've certainly seen in a lot of transactions, um, as well as talking to people, it, it seems to me that earnouts can be one of those big things that, that causes problems. Um, I've got uh, friends, colleagues who are lawyers who do M&A work, and they say 80% of our M and A litigation is around earnouts, yeah. right? Which is which is a pretty scary thing, um, and I think a lot of that problem comes down to how complicated sometimes these earnouts are and and what they're based on. C- can I ask you what your earnout was based on broadly?
1: Yeah, it, totally. And I will say we had a great experience with it. And advice that I would give to people who are listening is really do your due diligence on who you're going to partner with, like. Don't just think you're selling, especially if it's an earnout. Like, obviously, if you're selling and you're walking away, it's a different story. But if you're selling and it's in an earnout, then you pick your dance partner. You're getting married here, and you want to. You know, that was our whole thing. We wanted to date before we got married, so we set up a partnership beforehand, and then we did it, so we knew what we were walking into. But we also did our due diligence. It wasn't um, um, the company that bought us was Omnicom, which is one of the biggest public companies, and I have nothing but nice things to say the they were they came exactly as advertised they told us exactly what it was it was almost like a template right you were almost walk, running through their factory and they explained to you you know how the earnouts work and it was really straightforward so from that so i would say that you want to make sure you're dealing with people you can trust and that have a reputation and we talked to people who said yeah they were totally fair to us and blah 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 and then the earnout for us was it was based on an average it was a multiple based on um, essentially your profit, your annual profit. And so then it was an average over the three years of that profit times a multiple. Now you had to still, you had to be profitable. You had certain like minimums you had to hit. And then there were different formulas based on how much you did towards the target. Like they essentially wanted you to grow by 10% every year. And by the numbers I just told you, you could tell we grew a lot more than that. So as long as you were hitting that, you were hitting the multiple. And there were some audits, but it was... Not hard, but I would say also invest in a great COO. I had, we had like the greatest, you know, who really knew accounting and knew all that, so our stuff was always buttoned up, and there were no surprises, and that's how it worked.
0: Yeah, that's fabulous, and and great to hear you had a positive experience. Yeah, um, you know, I think I think so much of this comes down to two parties coming in with the right intentions. Um, you know, I think so, so often. You know, I, I've seen so many offers put in front of my clients by by acquirers where it's just blatantly them trying to take advantage. And you think, gosh, you know, like, and this is to your point, I guess, is do your due diligence and, and work out who's, you know, who these people are before you want to sort of take any deals.
1: Yeah, and also, be, be, you're exactly right. I've seen the same stuff in the work I do now, and. I know that I'm in the minority of people who had like this wonderful experience, but I would also say, don't be fooled by the people themselves, because remember that they are part of a huge corporation and they can be fired and things can change. And like, don't fool yourself as to like, what can happen in our case, none of that happened. All the people we did the deal with were still there the day we did it, we're still there the day we were done. And they all were great, but that's not always the case. And sometimes it's, you know, out of their hands too, because they're not the ultimate person.
0: That's a really good point. Um, I I had another guest I was chatting to who they said, you know, we went in there and, and we had a really good relationship with this one guy and it was fabulous. And when things were kind of – there was a few little questionable things. They they put all this trust and faith in this other person. They said, look, yeah, but, you know, Bob's a lovely guy and he'll look after us, right? He won't do the wrong thing by us. And they were 100% right. Bob was, would not have done the wrong thing by them. But to your point, Bob left. Yeah. <laughs> and then And then at the end of the day, the deal is the deal. It's not, you know – Bob's interpretation of the deal. It's, it's what's documented and what is actually agreed. And, you know, I think you've got to assume that it's the, ba- the baseline of that agreement is what will be held as law. <laughs> so, exactly. And that's why
1: it's important to have a, a really good lawyer who knows all the ins and outs, who knows this world too. Like don't just hire your friend. Hire a lawyer that specializes in M&A and, like, in our case, somebody who's done deals with the, the buyer, so knew all the ins and outs. And, yeah, I guess where, where I thought you were going was some Bob, Bob's a great guy, but guess what? Bob's boss might tell him to do something else. And then Bob's going to call you and say, I'm sorry, but yeah, yeah. I'm about to screw you over. And uh, if you're lucky, Bob will at least say that.
0: And, um, yeah, yeah. Often Bob just exits stage left, and you never see him again, right? And then suddenly you're dealing with this big corporate lawyer or a team of lawyers, and you're like, "Hang on a minute! This used to be a really nice, friendly room, and now I just feel like uh, I'm being lined up in a firing squad."
1: Yeah, and just know that it's not about you, and it's not about your business, and it's it's all business, and and pay attention to the landscape. You know, like like something we were paying attention to after the earnout was what's the landscape of agency holding companies? How are they performing? How are their stocks doing? Does anybody care? Is this industry, you know, have a little vision. Is this industry going to last? Is it going to change? Like all the points you made, like the stuff, this is part of why I quit later on. The stuff we were charging people millions for, I realized somebody could do for $100,000. And I was like, oh boy, we're in trouble. Like this has become commoditized and changed and things change, things evolve. And so pay attention to that too, because, you know, what's the, the saying like, don't hate the player, hate the game, you know, like they're, yeah. things like that are, it's, it's real and it's hard because you've got to be detached, you know, you've got to not be emotional.
0: And that's really hard, especially as an entrepreneur. Yeah. Well, what to, to that end about not being emotional and being able to stay attached arm's length, you know, all the different um, kind of analogies or, you know, sayings we can use here. What sort of a role in your mind does an advisor play in in helping business owners in that environment?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the role, right? It's like having the confidant, the friend, the guide, the wisdom. It's, you know, I liken it to like having a superhero, right? Like if I could have the ultimate superhero on my side who cares only about me, and I could turn to them for all this stuff because they've been there. They've fought this. It's it's invaluable. And where we totally screwed up, Larry and I, is we didn't have any of these people. We didn't have a board. We didn't have advice. Our board was us and our wives because we figured we didn't want anyone to bother us. <laughs> like we didn't understand. Um, like yeah. a board of directors to us was like, oh, that's a scary, mean bunch of jerks that are going to tell us what to do. Like, I don't want that. That's the whole reason I quit. And um, we were just totally wrong. Didn't even know the concept of having a coach or an advisor. And we went through, we had a lot of hard things happen when we did sell our company that had we had the right advisors, the right people around us, we could have avoided altogether. It would have never happened, let alone they could have helped us navigate it. And um, so it's invaluable. And it's kind of why I've started the business I do now, which is Future Proof Advisors, which is essentially set up to be this board, this almost outsourced board of advisors to these small emerging mid-market companies that don't have it. And it, and the reason I came up with it is it's what I wish I had. And, uh, and Larry and I talked about this recently of like, and he was like, do you think we were too arrogant and too dumb to even do it? And I said, Yeah, we we probably (laughs) are. But we're trying to find the people who are smarter than we were and, and be helpful to them so they can avoid making these mistakes and really also help them just get further faster because the world's changing so much faster now
0: than it used to. Yeah, I I think that's wonderful Terry. Uh, you, you know, Terry, so you you remind me, and and you know, I love this about you. But it's you're almost a little bit like that really awesome tour guide. You know, <laughs> all of us have been on a holiday where you've done a trip and somebody's taken you out on this adventure, and you're like. This guy is the coolest guy, and he knows his shit. Pardon me, but you know, you know, a great tour guide they they walk you through. They've been on this journey so often, and they can tell you the relevance of that rock and that tree and these people. And the it, it's an They make it an experience that's enjoyable, right? And and but but it's also enjoyable because you know it's safe you know, this person makes it safe they remove the hazards they they hey step over this tree watch out and they'll tell you a funny story about somebody who tripped over that log that just happened to be me last time and uh, you know that's that's the, the 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 role isn't it i mean that's that sounds like the role you're playing now as a guide
1: it is. well that's super kind of you simon so thank you i don't think anyone i'm gonna record that and play it for my children <laughs> no one's that nice to me but i uh, so i appreciate it that's very nice of you and, and that's the idea right is I, it's coming from the most sincere place of like I've been very fortunate to have success in my life, and now it gives me so much pleasure to help others be successful. And you're right, it is like I don't know that I, it's I'm cool. Um, although I used to be cool, like I was saying earlier, <laughs> but it is it, it is amusing now that I'm because I'm done all these things. I've built companies, bought companies, sold companies, but also I'm involved in so many that. I've seen the movie before, like way more often than not. So I can help and I can hopefully correlate things like you said and tell stories that help make things make more sense and just help people get to conclusions faster. And we kind of jokingly say like when they meet with us, like our board thing, we call it like an hour of power. And the idea is like, spend one hour with us and then we'll help you, you know, save you like 200 hours for every hour we spend because of all the stuff that we're going to help accelerate for you. Just because we've been there and just and help navigate you, like you said, like a a good guide would. And, and and you're right. And it comes from the most caring, sincere place of like I'm just rooting for them. I want them to be successful. I want them to be happy. And we have our own no assholes rule. <laughs> you yes. know, like I get to kind of pick and choose who we work with, who are like good people, good-hearted with a good mission, trying to do things that better the world in some way. And and that's just it's really fun and inspiring to work with that next layer of uh, entrepreneurs. And I'm sure you have this too, Simon, in the work you do.
0: Uh, look, absolutely. You know, it's, it's one of those things, it's a Simon Sinek phrase that I, I really love. And there's lots of derivations on this, but you know, one of the comments he made in that Ted talk that just resonated with me from 12 years ago, whenever the, I heard, first heard it, but you know, you're not trying to work with everyone or sell to everybody. You're just trying to find those who believe what you believe. And, and that's, you know, to me, that means people who have a similar outlook on life and have a similar belief around values and what's important and, um, y- you know, you want to work with people who, who are good people and, you know, it's it, it, not just about financial transactions between you. It's about people who actually give you good energy and, and make you enjoy the work you do. And um, and let's be honest, business owners, you mentioned before, it's a lonely route. It's It can be hard. It, it can be stressful and whatever. Business owners need somebody in their corner who's cheering for them.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely right. And once they get over themselves, or at least this was my issue of like, not, you know, get op- get past your ego and be willing to ask for help and be listening, you know, and really wanting it. And I'm so lucky, like these, there's somebody I'm dealing with now who's, you know, I don't know, 15 years younger than me. And I was saying to him, I'm like, I wish I was as mentally evolved when I was your age as you are like I wasn't there I wasn't in a place where I was dying to be told I was wrong or dying to be like I had that ego going and I don't even think I was conscious of it so um I don't think I was a jerk but I just I didn't know what I didn't know I was just trying to go and that's how I thought it worked you know I just thought I was supposed to have all the answers and
0: boy was I wrong. Ah, oh, youth is wasted on the young, hey? <laughs> That's so, so true. I say as my knees hurt, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and my back creaks. <laughs> For no and... reason, yeah. Yeah. Oh, Terry, I love it. Um, I, I could honestly talk to you all day about this stuff because oh, I, I just you. can yeah. see how passionate you are, and I love your story, and I know you've got a million more that I'd love to hear. I, I think when I, next time I'm in L.A., which God knows when that'll be, but uh, you know we might have to have a glass of wine and, and have another chat. But be great. Um, Yeah. I'm going to put you on the spot in a moment, Terry, to ask you if there's one thing out of all the stuff you've done over the years. I'm sure there's hundreds of things, but maybe there's one tip that you'd like to share with your fellow entrepreneurs today. Um, But before I do that, what's the best way for people to reach out and contact you?
1: Yeah, I think the best way is you can find me on LinkedIn, which is always easy, or you can go to our website at futureproofadvisors.com. And, or you can email me directly, terry at futureproofgrp, futureproofgroup, but futureproofgrp.com.
0: Excellent. Um, look, we'll put those links in the show notes as well. Um, if you, as we always say on the show, if you're reaching out on LinkedIn, please put a little message. Maybe let Terry know that you heard him speak on the Buy Build Sell podcast, and at least he'll have some context as to why you're reaching out. Um, so yes, Simon uh, sent me, you know, and then yeah. <laughs> to the top of the queue, no question about it. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, maybe don't put Simon. Just how you heard him, <laughs> <laughs> um, Terry. Um, I'm so appreciative of your time. Before I let you go, Is, is there one tip you'd uh, you'd like to share with uh, with your fellow business owners?
1: Yeah, I, the tip I love is a tip that was given to me, which is don't ever try to solve a problem that's already been solved. And I think there's so many of us that do that, and instead, be resourceful. you know, find partners, find other people that can solve that problem for you, and you'll get a lot further faster.
0: Yeah, great idea. Great idea. Um, Terry, thank you so much for your time, your honesty, your openness, your sharing. Uh, I really am grateful. I've had a great time chatting to you. And and I certainly look forward to chatting to you again. Thank you, Simon. Same. Thank you so much. And thanks to anyone who's listening. And I hope it's
1: helpful. And and, uh, I really appreciate you giving me this platform the opportunity to share. So thank you.
0: My pleasure, indeed. The ultimate freedom is to own a company that is valuable, scalable, and saleable. Find out how you score on the eight factors that drive company value by completing the Value Builder questionnaire. Upon completion, we will send through your business scorecard so you can see how to maximize the value of your company. Just go to exitadvisory.com.au forward slash scorecard. The Buy Grow Sell podcast is brought to you by Exit Advisory Group a boutique M&A firm that helps business owners maximise company value and exit at the top of their game. To learn more about Exit Advisory Group, you can go to exitadvisory.com.au. And if you like what you've just heard, you can subscribe at buygrowsell.com to get a new episode delivered to your inbox each week. Thank you for listening to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast with Simon Bedard. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit buygrowsell.com forward slash episodes. Simon is the founder and CEO of Exit Advisory Group, and you can follow him on LinkedIn.